Hello, my friend. Did you have a wonderful holiday season? I trust you got plenty to eat, although I hope you have a little more room left for some food-related history. You can probably guess what we're going to be talking about today, seeing as we're here at the Tillamook Cheese Factory. Although, there is much more to Oregon's famous cheese than just the well-known Tillamook Factory. There's a massive dairy industry that thrives in the lush green grasses of the state that are perfect for the beautiful bovines that produce the very much needed milk to power this industry. Not to mention the immigrants that brought their already aged and expanded knowledge over from Europe. So, grab your cheese curds and a scoop of ice cream, and enjoy the history of Oregon's delicious dairy production. Dairy farming dates back quite a ways, around the 7th millennium BC in the early Neolithic era in northwestern Anatolia. Although the domestication of cattle as a food source and use as pack animals dates back as far as 12,000 years, ironically around the time that general agriculture began to spring up. If you remember in the Prohibition episode, it was a 13,000-year-old beer that was theorized to have sparked global agriculture. And while there is no concrete evidence of this, it's very likely to be at least somewhat true given the dates. The main commodity for dairies is, of course, milk. But as we all know, milk can be turned into other things as well, primarily butter and cheese. No one actually knows when cheese was first made, however, evidence suggests that it came about around the time that sheep were being domesticated, since animal skins and organs were used as sort of an ancient Tupperware system. The oldest archaeological evidence of cheese making comes from Kuyavia in Poland, where Old World strainers were discovered in 5500 BCE, coated with milk fat molecules. The oldest existing sample of cheese was discovered in the ancient tombs of Egypt, and according to a 2018 scientific paper, the samples are roughly 3,200 years old, although you probably don't want to go adding it to your pizza or sandwich anytime soon. Not just because of the age, but because ancient cheese was likely sour and salty, similar to that of feta cheese, and I don't know about you, but I don't really want to test that theory. Although, if you know anything about history related to Egypt, then you probably wouldn't be surprised if someone tried to. After all, Europeans would eat mummies. Yeah, you heard that right. Europeans thought anything coming from Egypt had powerful and mystical properties. In fact, the slang term gypsy, to describe the nomadic Romani peoples, is actually derived from the word Egyptian, as that is where Europeans thought the Romani had originated from. Etymology lessons aside, cheese was thought to have been created completely by accident. According to one legend, an Arabian trader set out across the desert with a supply of milk stored in a pouch made from the stomach of a sheep. The combination of the heat from the sun and the rinat, which is a complex set of enzymes produced in the stomachs of grass-eating animals such as cows, deer, sheep, and goats, was said to have caused the milk to separate into curd and whey. The trader discovered that the whey satisfied his thirst, and the curds provided a delicious source of food to sate his hunger. Whatever the origin, it's unanimously agreed that cheese was created around 8,000 years ago. 
Likewise, butter came at around the same time, this time in ancient Africa. A herder discovered by the same process as cheese that the milk in his pouch had been jostled around and turned into butter, although his pouch was made of sheepskin, so there were no enzymes to turn it into cheese. Like other foods, butter was used from medicinal needs to religious offerings, but butter has one particularly unusual story. It started a rebellion. The Great Butter Rebellion of 1766 was documented as the very first student protest in United States history, at the highly esteemed Harvard University, no less. Apparently, the uprising began one day in 1766, when the dining hall served the students rancid butter, although it's unclear if the university was entirely at fault for this, since the decade leading up to the Revolutionary War was fraught with economic difficulties in the country, making it challenging to provide the campus with fresh food. Nevertheless, the incident prompted a student named Asa Dunbar, who would later become the grandfather of early conservationist Henry David Thoreau, to jump onto his chair and declare, Behold, our butter stinketh. Give us, therefore, butter that stinketh not. Today, thanks to organizations and government bodies, we don't have to worry as much about butter rebellions, but that doesn't mean Oregon hasn't had its fair share of fantastical history when it comes to dairy production. In fact, the history books are filled with culture, culinary art, and sometimes disaster. I'm Marcus Axford, and welcome to Oregon. If you remember way back in episode 4, where we talked about lighthouses, we ended on a little tease about Oregon's great dairy industry, specifically the cheese portion, and indeed there is a lot to talk about. Oregon has a large agricultural footprint. In fact, it's probably very likely that, with the exception of fishing, if you weren't a logger or miner in the 1800s, you were definitely a farmer. The genesis of Oregon Dairy dates back to 1835, when American Navy officer and diplomat Lieutenant William Slackham was selected by President Andrew Jackson to explore the area and evaluate its potential for statehood. He was originally in Mexico serving as a special diplomatic agent, during which he sent a letter to Jackson praising California, which was under the control of Mexico at the time. This letter was credited in helping gain Jackson's interest in acquiring the territory of California. When the president's gaze turned to the Pacific Northwest, he tasked Slackham to evaluate the area, its people, and its potential for investment. So, Slackham traveled from Mexico on June 1, 1836, to the Sandwich Islands, what we know today as Hawaii arriving on November 5th to charter a ship called the Laureate to sail to the Columbia River. He left on November 24th and arrived a month later on December 22nd. Slackham then spent time interviewing Hudson's Bay Company officials, such as Dr. John McLaughlin, who you might recognize as the father of Oregon, and James Douglas, who was credited as the father of British Columbia, meeting with him at Fort Vancouver. 
After this, he then spent four days on French Prairie with the missionary Jason Lee examining the settlements. This isn't the first time Jason Lee has come up in our stories. If you remember, we discussed how he founded Willamette University and encouraged the, quote, taming of savages among the native peoples. Something I overlooked about him is that he appears again in Prohibition as an advocate for the temperance movement. However, there are still plenty of stories from Oregon Prohibition that I'm sure we will cover in the future, so it is definitely not the last we will see of Jason Lee. To Slackham's delight, he discovered during his exploration that the land of the Oregon Territory was rich with green grasses, perfect for cattle grazing. In fact, he noted in his report that he considered the Wilhemet, as he pronounced it, to be the finest grazing country in the world. Unlike California and Buenos Aires, there was very little drought, and the grasses were boundless and green all year round. So it was that he concluded that dairying could be one of the largest industries in the Oregon Territory. It was at French Prairie that Slackham helped to convince pioneer Ewing Young to give up his efforts to build a distillery and travel to California in order to purchase cattle that would then be driven overland back to Oregon. The cattle drive would mean a sort of independence from the Hudson's Bay Company, which, if you don't remember, is a legendary fur trading company established in England in 1670 and still operates as a retail company to this day, making it one of the oldest companies in the world. It has a long and complicated history, including what was at the time a very controversial monopoly on trade that specific entities were looking to break away from, particularly those promoting self-governance. Though the company was instructed by the British government to promote settlement, this was fundamentally at odds with the interests of the fur trade. As settlers arrived, the forested areas that provided habitat for the fur-bearing animals were cleared. As long as the fur trade was to be the company's primary focus, settlement would never garner wide support among its shareholders or staff. So, you could say there was a sort of Cold War brewing between the company, the British Crown, and westward American expansion. So, the very first joint venture in the territory, the Willamette Cattle Company, was formed, led by Ewing and several other settlers. Slackham even financed part of the venture himself, with $500 to cover expenses. Another $1,100 was raised from the settlers themselves, who became stakeholders in the company. And if you're curious, the total of $1,600 roughly amounts to $55,000 today. After his brief stay in the territory and gathering all the information he needed for Andrew Jackson, Slackham prepared to leave. On February 10th, 1837, Slackham left the Columbia with Ewing and several other settlers and sailed for California. By February 19th, the Laureate arrived at Fort Ross in California, where the settlers and Slackham parted ways. The group of pioneers made their way to San Francisco to purchase 700 head of cattle to be driven back over the Siskiyou Mountains into the Willamette Valley. Unfortunately, the journey wasn't without its troubles. Native Americans made things difficult for the cattle drive, 
and unfortunately about a hundred head of cattle were lost on the trip, though it's unclear if this means the natives killed them for food or just simply stole them to be used for milk and animal husbandry. The cattle drive did make it to the valley, and from there the bovine population exploded. Unfortunately, three years after this endeavor, Slackham would pass away at the age of 40, and Young himself would pass himself two years later. Young died without any known heir and without a will, which created a need for some form of probate court to deal with his estate, which had many debtors and creditors among the settlers. Dr. Ira L. Babcock was selected as Supreme Judge with probate powers to deal with Young's estate, and the events that followed his death eventually led to the creation of a provisional government in the Oregon country. By 1850, there were close to 10,000 cows in the area, and by 1860, the number had risen to 53,000, forming the basis of a burgeoning industry, which exported butter and later cheese, along with lumber and furs to San Francisco and the Yukon Territory. By 1900, there were 122,000 head of cattle. It's hard to put an exact date on the actual beginning of Oregon's dairy industry, or even a location. However, by all accounts, the industry began in Tillamook County in the 1850s, when white settlers like Eldridge Trask and Joe Champion moved into the Tillamook Valley and Tillamook Bay, Tillamook being a coastal Salish word meaning, quote, land of many rivers, presumably to describe the many rivers that run into the bay. Discovering the unique landscape of rolling green pastures, kept saturated by a very wet climate most if not all year round, and nestled just inland off the dense shores of the coastline, the new settlement found that the land was perfect for dairy cows, and access to a bay that went directly to the ocean meant smooth sailing for trade of dairy goods. Or so it should have been. I can't find much information on the reason as to why merchants refused to enter Tillamook Bay. The best I can find is that the mouth of the bay meeting the ocean would royal devastating waves, making entering the bay extremely dangerous. So the settlement of Tillamook quickly found itself facing starvation, unable to move the goods they were producing. After all, there's only so much dairy products that you can live off of. They needed other supplies as well. So a plan was formed to build Oregon's very first ship, the Morning Star, out of leftover timber and reclaimed shipwreck parts. The building started in September 1854, and after a few months of hard work by the entire community, the ship was completed on December 29th. It was christened the Morning Star because the settlers believed the ship would be the harbinger of a new day for the county. Unfortunately, the first attempt to launch the ship failed. There wasn't enough grease on the skids to drop it into the water, so a steer had to be sacrificed to make tallow for more grease. Several days later, on January 5th, 1855, the ship successfully launched and made for the open ocean. Luckily, the stormy trip to Astorium, Portland was largely uneventful for the Morning Star, it dropped its several tons of cargo, which included seafood and dairy products, loaded back up with the life-saving provisions, and made it safely back home. 
The ship would continue service for a year and a half until it was eventually sold off to Leonard and Green of Astoria to pay the debt of one of its owners, eventually being sold again to shipping interests in Olympia, Washington, where it wrecked in the Strait of Juan de Fuca in 1860. You might recognize the ship sitting out on display in the front of the Tillamook Cheese Factory today, although this was a replica of a replica. The Morning Star 2, which was built in 1959 to commemorate the Oregon Centennial. It sailed the same route with six tons of Tillamook cheese, helmed by one Axel Anderson of Bay City, through Astoria and up the Columbia River to Portland for the Oregon Centennial Exposition, making it just in time for Tillamook County Day, where free tours were offered as well as samples of cheese. After that, it sailed back home, where it was put on display before being replaced in 1992 with a smaller replica built by master shipwright Richard Miles of Aberdeen, Washington. Over the next few decades, from the 1860s, herd sizes grew, and products like 60-pound kegs of butter would be packed overland by beasts of burden, mostly pack horses, to western Yamhill County, and milk was transported by sternwheel steamboats, which would traverse the rivers before any sort of roads ever existed. The 1890s saw a rise in the dairy factory system in Coos and Tillamook counties, such as the four butter-making factories that opened in Coos County, supplied by dairies along the fertile banks of the Coquille River. 1890 in Tillamook County saw dairies producing 100 tons of butter, Large creameries were being built. The first cheese factory was opened in 1894, followed by a second in 1895. The factories produced 50,000 pounds of cheese in the second year. By 1903, 20 Tillamook factories were producing 2 million pounds of cheese a year. And besides lumbering, dairy farms were the first or second largest agricultural industry in the state. Today, milk is Oregon's official state drink, although 18 other states also have it as their official beverage, so that title isn't quite as special. But milk is the fourth most valuable commodity after only cattle, greenhouse and nursery products, and hay in the state. In terms of agricultural export, dairy products are Oregon's fifth most valuable commodity after seeds, fruits and nuts, wheat and vegetables. Not too bad at all. Much of Tillamook's cheese renown and premium pricing came from the aid of one Peter McIntosh, a Canadian from Ontario, and a very important individual. Born May 5, 1861 in Carleton County in Ontario, Canada, Peter was the sixth child in a family of ten children. He received a common education in Carleton County, and from there he learned the trade of a cheesemaker which he followed in his native land for a number of years. You see, while England introduced the concept of cheddar to the country, Canada produces some of the best cheddar in the world, thanks to things like climate, cattle stock, soil, pasture, and milk quality. If you wanted to learn the art of cheesemaking, there was no better place than Ontario, Canada. Migrating to Washington in 1888, Peter first moved to Tacoma, then he started looking for a favorable business opportunity, to which he leased two cheese factories in Cowlitz County, one at Freeport and one at Woodland, 
and was in business there for about five years, during which he also married Emily Bogard in 1891. By the way, if you're curious where exactly those locations are, Woodland is located across the river from St. Helens, with a population today of about 7,000 people. Freeport, unfortunately, no longer exists, becoming unincorporated in 1927 and absorbed as part of Longview. At its height in history, Woodland was considered the best cheese in the Northwest, second only to Canadian cheese. Eventually, though, Peter took his famous cheddar recipe and moved to Tillamook, enticed by opportunity and a position at a factory by cheesemakers Harry Ogden and Thaddeus T.S. Townsend. However, that might not have been the only reason Peter left. In 1894, ironically the same year the first cheese factory opened in Tillamook, excessive rain and snowmelt overwhelmed both the Willamette and Columbia River, specifically in the Portland area, leading to the highest level of flooding in history to this day at a record elevation of 39.7 feet. Needless to say, woodland dairies were devastated. Little cheese was turned out that year, and the farmers were in dire financial straits. Again, I can't say for sure if this helped McIntosh's decision to relocate, or if he was already in the process of doing so, Oddly enough, there's no exact date of the factory's opening that I can find, but as far as I can tell, if the job offer put Peter on the fence, then the flood definitely washed him off of it, pun totally intended, and as far as records show, dairy farming in Woodland has never been the same. Cheese making in Tillamook County was happening leading up to the 1890s, however, it was sparse. Butter was the primary product, being made from milk, but as Macintosh observed, butter did not travel near as well as cheese did, and helped encourage more cheese production in the valley. In fact, he himself owned several of these cheese factories. Unfortunately, the cheese king of the coast, as he came to be known, eventually faced an economic downturn that forced him out of the business but luckily his famous cheddar recipe remained. All was not lost for the great cheese king. He and his wife had a son, Donald, in 1897, and a daughter, Gertrude, four years later. McIntosh became a dairy inspector in Portland before moving to Gaston, of all places, and operated a cheese factory there until he passed away in 1940. Sadly, over the decades, his name slipped into relative obscurity, and while he has had his champions, his name is widely unknown. Which makes sense why his story lacked important details and specifications that I otherwise would have liked to include. But hopefully today we have brought his fame back into the light a little bit more. After all, it's because of him that we all enjoy the savory taste of a block of Tillamook cheddar cheese. The next stop on our tour of Oregon's dairy history begins in 1909 with the formation of the Tillamook County Creamery Association, a marketing organization that operates on behalf of its independent member producers. You see, local farmers all wanted to be on the same page when it came to cheese and dairy quality, not to mention that while the individual farmers were seeing decent yields, they would do far better forming a cooperative and pooling their resources. All they had to do was pay $10 as an entry fee, 
which is close to $3,500 in 2023 currency. Not a small amount by any means, but also not terribly expensive for successful dairy farmers. The value of the industry would only increase more with the completion of the railroad connection to Tillamook in 1911, granting the ability for cheesemakers to send out products more efficiently to cities on the West Coast. Government contracts made up a large chunk of the revenue for dairy farmers. In fact, the government sent out millions of pounds of cheese overseas during both world wars. And by 1940, in the midst of World War II, over a dozen independent cheese factories operated in the Tillamook region, all producing cheese for the Creamery Association's Tillamook brand. After World War II, the four largest independent cheese plants in the Tillamook area, Holstein, Tillamook, Maple Leaf, and Cloverleaf, merged to form the Tillamook Cheese and Dairy Association. The Dairy Association built a large state-of-the-art cheese-making plant, which opened in 1949 and quickly became a stopover for travelers driving on Highway 101. In case you're wondering, this is in fact the Tillamook Cheese Factory we all know and love today, along with the Morningstar replica out front. The 1960s were a difficult period for the cheese-making industry in Tillamook. Conflict erupted when the Dairy Association separated from the Creamery Association in a bitter dispute over the marketing of Grade A milk. And if you're having a hard time keeping up with who is who, don't worry, you aren't alone. So, as a reminder, the Creamery Association was the organization that came first. The break between the two associations effectively separated the region's dairy farmers and cheesemakers into competing camps, dividing families and the community, sometimes into all-out war. At one point, Creamery Association head Beale Dixon's home and car were damaged by a small homemade bomb, giving a whole new meaning to the phrase crying over spilled milk. The so-called Tillamook split dragged on for most of the decade, even as both organizations continued to sell products labeled as Tillamook Cheese. On January 1st, 1969, after years of litigation, the company reorganized as a single corporation, the Tillamook County Creamery Association. Confused? <laughs> Don't worry, so am I. It would be decades before the Creamery Association would be in the spotlight again, and when it came, it came with serious controversy. In 2000, the Creamery Association bought the Bandon Cheese Factory, which at the time was really struggling. Seeing as this episode has already gone on a little longer than normal, we will have to skip over a lot of the history of Bandon Cheese, but that's okay. There is plenty of history of even just Bandon in general that deserves its own spotlight. Buying Bandon Cheese itself wasn't controversial, however, after buying the Bandon Cheese Factory and its brand name, Tillamook's lawyers warned several South Coast businesses with Bandon in their names that they might need to make a content change to avoid confusion with the cheese, which is ironic when you consider the battle they had decades earlier. This controversy made international news, particularly in 400-year-old Bandon, Ireland, where residents have milked cows for generations. 
controversy would return again in 2004 with its attempted enforcement of the Tillamook cheese and Bannon cheese trademarks against local businesses such as Tillamook Country Smoker, a business that has sold jerky and smoked meats for over 30 years. The Creamery tried to stop the meat company from using the name Tillamook, to which a federal judge ruled that Tillamook Country Smoker could register its name as a trademark, but that Tillamook Country Smoker could not use or register the Tillamook Jerky mark. Apparently, they wanted to be the Disney of the dairy industry. However, the move that brought Tillamook the most nationwide attention came in 2005, after a slew of consumer inquiries about dairy's use of a genetically engineered bovine growth hormone designed to boost milk production, specifically concerns over potential cancer risks. The Food and Drug Administration had said milk products derived from cows injected with the hormone were safe, but it didn't keep people content, and eventually more noise began to rumble. Because of this, and over objections from some member farmers and from biotechnology giant Monsanto, which or ironically manufactured the hormone, Tillamook County Creamery Association voted to require all of its dairy suppliers to phase out its use. Tillamook was actually one of the first big national dairy brands to make such a decision. A lot of the controversy from the Creamery Association wasn't the only thing that left the taste of rotten milk in people's mouths. In the earlier years of dairy production, before cleanliness, before safety measures, before the laws we have today came into effect, and not to mention before the refrigeration technology of the last 50 years plus, it was very hard to manage dairy quality, and sometimes it led to disastrous consequences. Ironically, the same year that the Creamery Association was created, one dairy farmer near Portland was growing concerned about a problem he was having. The farmer noticed his barn cats kept dying, and after a few days, he finally figured out what the problem was. His cow's milk. Of course, the farmer was terrified. He had been shipping the stuff to Portland to be fed to babies and children. He went to the state dairy and food commissioner to ask what he should do, to which the commissioner replied, It's just tuberculosis. Don't worry about it. Tuberculosis milk will kill cats, but will fatten babies. Of course, today we couldn't imagine such a nonchalant answer, especially when it comes to food, but even today, people still cut corners and neglect safety. Luckily, this time it didn't seem like it caused any harm, but in 1922, it would be a whole different situation. On March 25th, 1922, a two-year-old Portland child died. The diagnosis was, quote, clinical picture of sore throat and encephalitis. Although, at the time, authorities had no idea what exactly the situation was or what nightmare was to come. Three days after that first death, Portland City Bureau turned to the University of Oregon's medical school for help, eventually authorizing medical Dr. R.L. Benson and H.J. Sears, who had a Ph.D. in bacteriology, to launch an investigation they would have their work cut out for them, as over the next several days nearly 500 people would be infected, and 21 more children would die in an outbreak of foodborne illness that was both quick and deadly. 
Benson and Sears not only conducted a thorough investigation, but also recorded their findings in an 11-page report published in the June 2, 1923 edition of the Journal of American Medical Association. I'm not going to go over every detail, but their investigation eventually led them to a single dairy farm. After getting the outbreak under control through various protocols, it was determined that cows with diseased udders were not being separated from the healthy cows. Specifically, one cow in particular was narrowed down as the culprit. As dramatic as the story might sound, the conclusion isn't as satisfying as you might expect. The facility was operating well within clean and proper regulations, and it all came down to a simple mistake. Sadly, 22 families paid the price for that mistake, and were changed forever. So it is that we come to the end of our tour of Oregon's dairy industry. Of course, that isn't to say there aren't more dairy stories. This might be cheating, but Bandon really is a great place to visit. It is a town with so much history and intrigue that it honestly needs its own episode entirely. And I can't wait to bring it to you. But sadly, that is a story for another time. Well, my friend, the year finally draws to a close. We look back on things we've done, things we might regret, things we can be proud of. I definitely have a lot to look back on this past year. I never expected at the start of 2023 that by the end I would be a dad. Heck, I didn't even expect to be talking to you, doing this show. I am looking forward to a whole new year of stories and adventures, though. Speaking of which, I might make one of my New Year's resolutions be to do new and different things. Maybe next time you'll find me cross-country hiking in the snow. What? It could happen. Well, my friend, I must be going. I hope you enjoy your New Year's Eve. Stay safe, and I shall see you next year. This episode of Welcome to Oregon was researched, written, and narrated by me, Marcus Axford. Additional staff includes Jessica Axford, Leah Palmerai, and John Palmerai. If you like our show, you should check out our website. It's the central hub for all that we do here, including a feed for the podcast, a link to our Threadless store, and Patreon donation page, and various articles on camps, state parks, restaurants, and more. We aren't Yelp, we just want to help people on their own adventures around the state. We also have our Oregon resource directory, which has a growing list of our associates like Finn John from Offbeat Oregon and Zachary Ness from the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. Basically a place where you can get more information on Oregon and connect with cool people. Got an Oregon-related article you want showcased? Let us know and we will put it, with your credit of course, on our website. We also have our social media links on our contact section for further interaction. Check us out at www.welcometooregon.net, and if you want more interaction, you can join our new Discord server, which the link to that is also on our website. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I loved writing it. And until next time, thanks for listening.